Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Jeff, and I am your host today and also the executive director of First Century Foundations. Uh, We mixed it up a little bit last week, and now over the next few weeks, we're going to do something also a little bit different. Instead of interview format, we're going to be looking at some uh, teaching material that I have presented on the I Am Statements of Jesus. And uh, so for this first one, We're going to be talking about Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. So answering some questions like, why were the words I am so important? And also, what in the context of the Jewish roots or the Hebraic understanding of what Jesus was saying, how does this impact really how we should interpret what Jesus said about being the bread of life? So hope you enjoy this teaching today. And uh, right now, we're going to go to that. I apologize in advance for a little bit of a clip in the audio. I'm going to have you open your Bibles if you have them with you or your electronic devices uh, and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at this text. And uh, let me just say, I already mentioned we're going to be looking at these I am statements of Jesus. And we're going to look at five of them this week. There are actually, uh, I think, eight or so, but we I only have five days to teach. So. Uh, we'll look at five of them this week, uh, probably six actually. On, on Wednesday, I'll cover a couple. But today we're talking about the bread of life from John 6. Tomorrow, we'll be covering I am the light of the world from John chapter 8. I am the good shepherd on Wednesday. And uh, also, we'll talk about the fact that he said, I am the gate in that very same uh, sort of uh, transaction. And then uh, two more, I am the resurrection and the life. And on Friday, I'm the true vine. Now, that's my plan. If uh, God has something else planned, we'll, we'll, follow, we'll follow that. Although I'm the morning speaker, I'm not really supposed to be influ- influenced by the Holy Spirit quite as much as the evening speaker, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. It, some of you actually laughed at that. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. All right. So I want to just uh, stay there for one second. So we're going to look at these statements together. Before we do, though, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for uh, Your Holy Spirit who is here with us today. We thank You, God, for the fact that, that You, by Your Holy Spirit, illuminate Your Word to our hearts. That You show us the truth and that You help us to understand what it is that's, that's being said. And so, Spirit of God, we just pray that you would, uh, you would use this humble, broken vessel. God, as, as we teach Your Word today, we pray that, that uh, You would hide any personality, and that you would allow Jesus Christ, Yeshua, to be, to be lifted up and exalted and magnified as we look at your word together today. God, that's our heart's desire. And so we pray that uh, you will speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. So to preface our thoughts on these five amazing statements of Jesus, I want to go back to the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and see why it is so significant that Jesus p- 
picks up and uses this kind of language. And by that, I mean the, the preface to all of his statements. See, I believe that we better understand the words and the actions of Jesus when we understand the, the Hebraic roots of our faith. When we understand a little bit about Judaism, it helps us to know why it is that Jesus did and said some of the things that he did. Because the Old Testament was a, was a precursor to the New Testament. Everything about the Old Testament was to foreshadow Messiah, was to foreshadow Christ who would come. But it is also, the Old Testament, foundational to our understanding, I believe, of what comes in the new. And we know that, that God gives us prophetic revelation, that the Spirit speaks to our hearts and illuminates the Word as we just pray together. But, but when we understand what's going on in Jewish culture, we, we get insight then into some of the things that Jesus said and did. So think back with me very early in the Old Testament narrative to a guy named Moses. Have you heard of Moses? Okay, good. I just wanted to check. Moses' very existence was miraculous considering the fact that you know he was marked for death by Pharaoh when he was just a boy, a young baby. And uh, you know, along with all the other Jewish baby boys in that time in Egypt. And as a result of his mother's ingenuity and the divine protection of God, Moses ends up being raised in the household of Pharaoh and in the lap of luxury. And this is just, you know, an overview of his quick story. But unfortunately, you know, Moses, as he grows up, he begins to identify with his own people, with the Jewish people who are living in slavery in Egypt. And, uh, you know, we, we heard a little bit about it last night in, in sort of his first attempt at a leadership moment. He ends up, you know, trying to protect one of his brethren. He kills an Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And then the next day, when he tries to speak, you know, some wisdom to some of his Hebrew brothers, he gets called on it and says, oh, you, you want to help us like you helped that Egyptian yesterday? We saw, we saw what happened. And so Moses has to flee, and he goes and he flees into the desert. And it's while living on the backside of the desert, tending the flocks of his father-in-law, that he encounters God himself, a burning bush that does not, it's never consumed. And so he, he ends up in conversation with the, the living God, with the living God. How many of you in a desert moment, have ended up in a conversation with the living God, right? Those are, those are good moments to be able to encounter Him. And so Moses is there, and God tells Moses, He says, Moses, I've got a plan, and here's what I need you to understand, Moses. I have seen, I have seen the misery of my people Israel. I have seen their misery. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, their taskmasters in Egypt. And I am concerned about their plight and I have come down to rescue them. That's in Exodus 37, 7-9. I love that verse. I want you to know today uh, that even though this is you know, not in the greater picture of what we're talking about this morning, but whatever it is that you might be going through today, you need to be reminded from God's Word to Moses that He not only sees what it is that you're going through. He not only understands the misery that, that you're experiencing, but He hears you crying out and He is concerned and He will come down. He will come down and rescue you. Do you believe that today? I believe that today. And so just take that little nugget away this morning before we, before we move on. So Moses thinks this is great. This is amazing. God is going to deliver 
Egypt. And, and he's getting kind of excited about that, I think, right up until verse 10 of Exodus 37, when God says to Moses, oh, and by the way, I'm sending you. You're the one that's going to lead my people out. And Moses is like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm, I'm just, I'm nobody. I, I don't know how to, to do this. We can't get into the whole story, but, but eventually in this exchange, as Moses is going back and forth with God, trying to wriggle his way out of this situation, Moses says to God, okay, look, suppose that I do go to the Israelites and tell them, God has sent me to lead you out of Egypt. Well, what do I say to them? What if they ask me, who is this God? What is His name? And this is what I want you to see today. In Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God said to Moses, here's what He said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the God of your fathers, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am who I am, or I am that I am. This statement by God, it's a revelation into His nature. What he is saying here essentially is that his nature cannot be described by, by human thought, that actually he exists because of his existence. He says, I am who I am. I am the one who was. I am the one who is. I am the one who will always be. That's who I am. Say, I am. I am. That is our God today. And he says that my existence has to do with the fact not only that I exist, but that I have always existed and I will always exist. And so, He has His being of Himself and He has no dependence on any other. This was God's definition of Himself that He gave to Moses to communicate to the children of Israel. And as such, and this is what we need to remember, okay? Fast forward now to the days of Jesus and to all of the Jewish scholars that He banters with back and forth and understand that when they hear this phrase, I am, it triggers something for them. That's, that's God. God said, I am that I am. And so when Jesus comes using this kind of language, it's going to get some notice. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus really riled up the Jews when He said this. He said, before Abraham was born, what did He say? I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And that got their attention. They picked up stones to stone him in this, in this instance, but, but he, he did get away, okay? So this is, the, this is sort of the, the backdrop, I guess, for the week, is that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, an alarm bell goes off just with the first two words because it's God who identified himself as the I am, okay? And so all that to say, that we want to remember that Jesus was Jewish, this was his culture, and it, this was his audience. And so everything that Jesus says, everything that he does, we have to interpret it not with our you know, North American lenses, but through Jewish eyes. You know, I, I, the more that I read and the more that I have, have researched, I'm discovering that I've been guilty of this for many, many years in the pastorate. We look at, we look at texts 
and we like to North Americanize them because it helps us to contextualize. And, and of course, we're supposed to make application to the modern day, but sometimes we miss the main point of what Jesus was trying to say when we try to wrap it around our North American context. I've got a whole series on, on the parables, actually, that you know, sometimes I think we get the parables all wrong because we, like we like them to sort of match up with our experience, but, but they don't always. Jesus told them as Middle Eastern stories, right? So we, we need to understand this. So first, let's talk about the bread of life. And we're in John chapter 6. And uh, we're going to read 47 to 51. There's a lot here, but let me just read these few verses to you together. New glasses. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. This is a powerful text. And it was a text that, that actually divided the followers of Jesus even at this point. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And so we're going to look at all of these statements this week from three perspectives or from three points of view. And first, I want to just talk about the context. And context just means what's going on. What's, what's happening? What's, what's background as Jesus is giving this teaching? We're going to look at some of that together as we look at these statements. And then the second thing is, is some clarification. In other words, why does Jesus use the language he uses. In this case, you know, why does he call himself the bread of life? You know, uh, why does he choose bread? And we want to talk a little bit about that together. And then lastly, there always has to be for me a call to action. Uh, it's great to teach the word of God, but if we can't take application away, if we can't understand what it is that Jesus wants us to do with what we now understand and know, then what's the point really? It's all just it's all just academic. And uh, there's nothing really academic about God's kingdom, is there? It's all about action. And so we want to talk a little bit about that together. So first of all, the context. The context. What's happening? Well, there's a couple of things. And just quickly, if you go back to the first part of chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, the story that is the backdrop for this is the feeding of the 5,000. Remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? What two things did, did that involve? Do you remember? What did the little boy have in his lunchbox? Oh, bread. Bread and fish. That's right. So we're going we're gonna to look at sort of the context here, but I want you to go even uh, you know, to the beginning of the chapter because here's what it says in verse 4. Not only you know, was there a great crowd who had come, these are in the first few, few verses, because they saw the miraculous signs. So, so note that, okay? They came for the sensationalism. They came because they saw the miracles. And then it says in verse 4, just one little line, and you've got to think about, well, why is this here? But, but here's what it says. The Jewish Passover feast was near. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Passover is about, is about remembering the Exodus. It's about remembering God's faithfulness in the Exodus and about remembering His deliverance from the angel of death. Do you remember all of that? the blood on the doorposts and they had to eat the unleavened bread and they had to prepare the, the Passover lamb. You're familiar with some of that, right? 
And so he just drops this in here. John says, oh yeah, and, and the Jewish Passover was near. Why does he have to tell us that? Well, there's some significant things about Passover that have to do with, with bread and bread and its relationship with, with Jesus, uh, who is also our Passover lamb. And so we'll, we'll just sort of pull that in there very quickly. And then, uh, you know, we come to the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus looks at Philip. There's a big crowd. He says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he's, he, you know, he's, he's kind of messing with them a little bit. And Philip says, I, I don't know. That's going to take more money than we've got, you know, like eight months wages or something like that. And so uh, he says to his disciples, well, we're going to do something about this. And so someone comes and says, there's a little boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. So Jesus springs into action. He tells them, okay, well, you get them seated in groups of 50 and groups of 100, and we'll hand out the, we'll hand out the bread and fish. And they're all looking at him like, what? There's only, there's only five loaves. There's only two fish. And so miracle ensues. They start to hand out the bread and the fish. And you know, I, I do another message where I talk about this, and you can sort of see them at the beginning going, um, you know, they're picking little pieces of bread off. Hi, there you go. How are you? Here, here you go. But after about 10 minutes, they realize the bread's not getting any smaller, and they get a little bit more excited, right? It's like, hey, have a piece of bread. They're ripping off big hunks and giving it out. And so what happens is the entire crowd, 5,000 men plus women plus children, okay? You do the math, are fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. That's the, the backdrop. That's the context of what's happening here. And then it's, it all happens on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. I have a map here, actually, that uh, is dark. So it's hard for you to see, but... Uh, Capernaum is here. This is where they end up. This is where the conversation happens uh, about uh, about the bread of life. And Tabga, which is the traditional site of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, is just kind of above Magdala here. Okay, can you see that? That's Magdala, so just above. So when they went, when it says they went across the sea, how many of you have always pictured them getting into a boat and going from one side to the other? Be honest. Is that what you pictured? It's okay. I'm not gonna point the laser pointer at you or anything if you agree. That's what I always pictured. But then I, I went to Israel and I got to understand uh, that, that across the sea is not where they went. They actually, you know, they got into a boat here and they just went out into the water and they made their way up the coast a little bit north to Capernaum. That's, that's what happened. And so what I'm talking about is after the miracle, it says that, you know, Jesus went off by himself to pray. The disciples get into a boat and then went across to, to Capernaum. And Jesus then comes later walking on the water. So there's, there's, uh, there's the location of the loaves and fishes. There's the fact that the Passover is near that I think is very significant. And then uh, Jesus walks on the water and he ends up over in Capernaum. Somehow the people determine that he has arrived over there. And so they, they make their way by land uh, you know, up to, to Capernaum to see now what's going to happen next. And so uh, that's kind of where we are. And they get there and they say to Jesus, this is in Capernaum now, okay? By the way, let me, don't let me forget this. At the end of the miracle of the, the loaves and fishes, what did Jesus instruct the disciples to do? Anybody remember? Pick up the pieces. There were leftovers. From five loaves and two fish, there were leftovers. Twelve basketfuls, it says. And so... So they go and they pick up the, the extra pieces 
adopted. This is important because what did they do with them? I think they took them in the boat across with them to Capernaum. So they've still got the pieces of bread with them in the boat, right? And they, they all get there. They, you know, Jesus comes walking on the water. We've got that whole story that I don't have time to get into today. And then the crowd comes and they say to him, when did you get here? They say to Jesus, how did you get here? You didn't get in the boat. I, I didn't see you get in the boat. And Jesus kind of, you know, gives them that wry sort of God wink and eh, don't worry about that. Let's, you know, let's talk. And so they, they have this conversation. And instead of answering their question, he gets right to the heart of the issue. Look at John chapter 6, 26 and 27. Jesus answered. He said, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were just looking for their next meal. They were looking to get their bellies full. You ate the loaves and had your fill. Do, do not work for food that spoils, but, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God has placed His seal of approval. Uh, what were they looking for? The text says they went in search of Jesus. That's what it says uh, in, in verse 24. They went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. But when they got there, they, they, they wanted to know what, when did he get there. And so, so Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter here. We can tell from Jesus' response that he thought that they were just looking for their next meal. They were just looking maybe for the next miracle, for the next sensational thing. Because sensationalism, uh, just like it is today, was alive and well in Jesus' time. And a lot of the people who were following him were following because of what he could do for them and not because you know they believed in him necessarily. And so they didn't have social media, they didn't have the internet, but somehow word still got around. People go, you know, people tend to go to where the action is. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, You're just here because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And then he tells them in a roundabout way that he's he is the Son of Man. Now this uh, some of you may have heard of the, the Ramez method of teaching in, in Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. And Ramez is, is really the word that is most helpful for me is hinting. You know, that this is a, a way that rabbis teach their students in Judaism and Jewish culture. They, rather than give them the answer all the time, they will just, they will hint around it so that their students can find the truth on their own. And it's a, it's a very effective method of teaching. And it, it helps because when you've actually sort of discovered the truth on your own, you own it a little better, don't you, than when somebody just tells you and you accept it at face value. You understand? And so this is, a, this is common in, in Jewish culture. And Jesus uses this all throughout his ministry. And so here he's, he's hinting at the fact that essentially he is the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. When he uses the words son of man, it's a Messiah reference. And not only does he say, um, you know, work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says, for on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. His seal of approval. Now, this is a little bit of a sideline, but I want you to just humor me here for a moment. Uh, the seal, uh, you've, you've seen seals before. Uh, we still use them today, I think, in, in, you know, on some legal documents. We've got the sort of a punch that we put a, an official seal on something, right? You've seen that before. 
Well, it was used in the very same way in Jewish times. In those days, hot wax and the imprint of the ring of the king or other official to make a document authentic or show ownership or authority would be used. And so you will remember that the Roman authorities used a seal just like this to seal Jesus' tomb. That didn't work so well. But they tried, right? I've been there. He's not there anymore. And uh, you, need, you need to go and maybe see for yourself. But uh, and we won't get into whether or not it's the actual tomb or not. They've never been able to find his body, okay? He's not there. He's not there. Hallelujah. So they used the seal like that on Jesus' tomb. And so anybody here interested in archaeology at all or, or like archaeology? Yeah, some of us do. The rest of you are... You can have a little nap right now, okay? But I want you to check this out. This was found in 2015. It's a little dark. Uh, hard for you to see this. But this is called uh, a bulai, or, a, or a, clay, a clay seal, essentially. And so, if you can imagine, uh, this, this is, this is a, a piece of wet clay that, that the king would actually press his ring into. And then they would use the wet clay to put around the strings that wrapped the documents or the, or the parchments. And what that would tell people when they saw those documents was that, is that this has been authorized, it's been authenticated by the king himself. Okay, This was found in 2015 near the southern wall of the Temple Mount. And uh, the inscription says, how many of you like, like to know that, uh, how many of you like tangible things, Right? We talked about faith last night, and that's good because we need faith to believe that the Bible is true, to believe that what we read in the Bible is true. But, but sometimes we like things that we can hang on to too, right? Well, I want you to know that the Bible is true. And, and we have ways, we have evidence where we can actually prove that much of what is in the Bible is true. This seal was found in 2015 near the southern wall of the Temple Mount. The inscription says, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Three things. Hezekiah, have you heard of him before? Son of Ahaz, king of Judah. So if you're someone who needs proof or evidence that the Bible is true, consider this. Hezekiah and his father Ahaz are mentioned together in the same verse of Scripture seven times in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 16, chapter 18, 1 Chronicles 3, 2 Chronicles 28, Isaiah 1, Hosea 1, Micah 1. And once in the New Testament as well, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 9, seven times they are mentioned together. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. That's what Hezekiah was. In Scripture, he was the king of Judah. 2015 found near the southern wall of the Mount. So, don't worry about whether the Bible is true or not. Uh, you know, if you were worried. I don't think that any of you were. But I love stuff like this because you can't, you can't argue with that. Okay? And so, in the, in the ancient Near East, these clay were used to secure the strings. I already said that. And it, it meant authenticity for a document. So, when Jesus says, He says, you know, that, that the Son of Man has God's seal of approval. He was essentially saying that He was this Son of Man, that He is the Messiah. He was telling them, don't look for temporary things like food. Don't look for things like you know, food, bread and fish. No, He said, look for eternal food that I can give you. Look for eternal life, not the fleeting things of the world. 
Don't follow the crowd to try and find the next miracle, the next sensational thing. Man, is this a message that we need to hear today? I think it is. The prosperity gospel and all that we see in a lot of television evangelism and so on focuses on the miracles and the blessing and what God can do for me and how I receive God's blessing and what can I get from God. And that's what these crowds were doing as well. They were following Jesus because they wanted to know what's the next thing that you can do for me. And even if we don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel, we can still be guilty of only going to Jesus when we are in trouble or when we are in need of something. Right? Come on, be honest. Only about two of you are nodding. But we can be guilty of that, by the way. Not that we shouldn't go to Jesus when we are in trouble or in need of something, but we shouldn't only go to Him in those, in those circumstances. And so, you know, sometimes I think that uh, we end up treating Jesus a little bit like a vending machine, right? God, what can You do for me today? What have You done for me lately? You know, I'll believe in You today if I can remember something that You did for me recently. And, and really, this is kind of the scenario or the context that Jesus is dealing with here. One last thing about context here. Bread was and still is a, a critical staple in Hebrew culture. Middle Eastern culture, really. And all over the world. How many of you like a nice, fresh slice of bread? Right? I know some of us are on the low-carb diet. We don't get to see bread as often as we used to. Um, I miss bread, honestly. But, but uh, you know, bread is a staple. Of, of sustenance. And so it was the essential basic food. So basic was it that in Hebrew, the word or the phrase to eat bread, lechem, to eat bread is actually the same word or phrase that is used to have a meal. They equate bread and a meal together. It's the same. Okay, And so bread was treated with great respect in Jewish culture. And many rules existed to preserve that reference, that reverence. For example, any crumbs over the size of an olive, you know how big an olive is, any crumbs over the size of an olive were to be, were expected to be gathered and never simply discarded in Jewish tradition. Does that sound familiar to you? What did Jesus say to the disciples? Go and pick up all the little pieces of bread. And they gathered 12 basketfuls. Why did they do that? Well, they did it because Jesus told them, but they also did it because it was normal in their culture. No bread. Bread was revered. It was not to be wasted or discarded in pieces smaller than an olive. I I found that very intriguing. Bread also was never to be cut with a knife in Jewish tradition, but always to be broken. What do we see Jesus doing? He breaks the bread, right? I love this stuff. And so we we understand some of this. Breaking of bread is a huge part of Jewish culture. And on Shabbat, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the Shabbat dinner, they they pray and they, they say, you know, blessed are you, Lord of the universe. And they pray to the one who provides the fruit of the vine and the one who provides the bread. And the bread is broken as they begin the meal together. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. So that's the context. So you get a little bit of a, a backdrop for your painting, right? You know how a, uh, an artist takes a canvas and first he puts, in, he puts in the sky and then he puts in the ground and then he starts to build some trees in and maybe a bird here and there. And eventually he begins to sort of work on the picture. But, but we need the context to sort of understand the whole thing. And so now we get to some clarification. Why? 
why did Jesus use the language that he used? Why did he call himself the bread of life? Well, we've talked about a couple of things, but let's consider the obvious, first of all. Jesus was known for using practical illustrations to get his points across. Even things that were right at hand. Right? Somebody came to him and asked him about taxes. Who should we pay taxes to? What does he do? Bring me a coin. He gets the coin. Whose inscription is on the coin? Oh, that's Caesar's. Very well. You go ahead and give to Caesar what is Caesar? What is Caesar's? And give to God what is God's. Jesus used these kind of illustrations. He's sitting at a well in Samaria and a woman comes to draw water and he says to her, will you get me some water to drink? And, and she says, how can you, you know, a Jew asked me, a Samaritan, to, to, a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman to, to get you a drink of water? And what does Jesus say? If you knew, if you knew who it was that you were talking to, you would ask for the gift of living water. I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. Jesus always used illustrations at hand. And so this is one of the reasons why Jesus does this. He uses the story, the, the miracle that's just happened of the, the loaves and the fishes, he brings bread in as an illustration. Why not the fish of life? You know, I always wonder, why didn't he say I'm the fish of life? Right? I don't know. Maybe that's just because I like to fish uh, and I like to eat fish. Uh, maybe the fish of life would have spoken to me more than the bread of life would have. But, but he uses the bread because of some of these other things that we've been talking about together. Uh, maybe there was no fish left over, so they weren't handy for an illustration. The bread pieces we know were there. We know that the context here is right after this miracle. And so Jesus grabs the opportunity and uses the illustration of the bread. Actually, the, the people who are there in Capernaum help him to make the connection. When he says to them that they're simply following the miracle, and he encourages them to get a more eternal perspective and to believe that you know God has sent him, here's what they say. Well, will you, will you, what, what other miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you. That's in verse 30. And then they bring up Moses and the manna in the desert. It's kind of like, well, while we're talking about bread here, what about this? What about the bread from heaven that our forefathers told us about? Can you do something like that? (laughs) Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I can. And I did. Uh, You know, I think that's what Jesus was thinking. They were still looking for sensational, for one more miracle. And here's what he says, 32 and 33. He says, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they're like, okay, great. Give us this bread. Give us this bread. But they didn't know what they were asking. And then Jesus sort of drops the bomb on them. Instead of another miracle, He gives them a sign And I want to read it for you. It's too long to put on the screen, but from verses 35 to 40, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that one who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, uh, let's, let's just look at this together for some clarification. He says, I am 
the bread of life. Now, when he talks about the fact that he is the bread come down from heaven, this is what the Jewish people hear. They hear he's saying that he's greater than who? Moses. Moses, you know, under Moses' leadership that the manna came down from heaven. This is legendary in Jewish culture. They talk about it all the time. The Exodus is huge. The Passover that, that is coming up is all about celebrating God's deliverance of, of the Jewish people from Egypt. And so Jesus essentially here is equating himself with the manna that God sent from heaven. And by doing so, he not only puts himself par with Moses, he actually, he actually says, you know, Moses was there in leadership when the bread came down from heaven. I actually came down from heaven. That's what Jesus was saying. This would be so offensive to those committed to Judaism then and today. Moses is their hero. The man of story has legendary status among the Israelites, and Jesus puts himself higher than Moses here. I'm not just like Moses. I actually came from heaven, he says. Moses didn't do that. And so we think about that for a second. Everything that the Jews celebrated begins with God's deliverance from Egypt. Grant Jeffrey says to Christians, Moses might appear to be just one of many wonderful godly men of the Bible. However, to the Jews, he occupies a place of supreme importance, even higher than Abraham. For over 3,000 years, Israel has looked back with reverence to the great prophet Moses. He was a unique leader with outstanding qualities as a prophet, priest, teacher, savior, and lawgiver. None of the other prophets or leaders came close to duplicating this multiple, multiple role. Okay, So Moses is hugely revered in Jewish culture. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses prophesies about someone who will come that will essentially be the second Moses. Okay, And here's, here's what he said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. And so Moses has already told them about someone who's going to come. They're looking for him. They're looking for this prophet, the second Moses. As a matter of fact, they have already put two and two together. If you look in verse 14, it says, after they saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They were speaking about this second Moses, about the one that Moses prophesied about. As a matter of fact, if you have, how many of you have a Bible with the margin in the middle, the cross references? Anybody have those? If you look at the little letter beside verse 14, you'll probably find in the margin, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It, it relates to this prophecy about Moses. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I'm the second Moses. They're starting to put two and two together. Now, if you think about this, where was Jesus born? Born in Bethlehem, right? You celebrate Christmas here? Okay, he was born in Bethlehem. What's, what's Bethlehem mean? Does anybody know? House of bread. So Jesus is born in the house of bread. He's born in Bethlehem. He is now saying to them that he is the bread of life. He's comparing himself to Moses, essentially saying, I'm the son of man, I'm the Messiah, I'm the second Moses. And in a story in Luke 4, 
when he, uh, you know, picks up the scrolls to read in the synagogue. Remember what he, what he reads? He reads from the book of Isaiah. He didn't choose that, by the way. It was chosen for him. One of the readings that would have happened in the synagogue that day. But it says they all are staring at him. And when it says they're staring at him, it's actually before he says, I'm the person that, that Isaiah is talking about. They're staring at him before that. Why are they staring? Because it says that he sat down. It says that he sat down. Do you know where he sat? He sat in a chair that they called the seat of Moses. That's why they were staring at him, because that seat was reserved for only you know, the, the rabbi of the synagogue. Only very, very specific people could sit there. And Jesus sat down in the seat of Moses and then said to them, you know what, what this verse is talking about? The one who's going to come and bind up the brokenhearted and so on. That's me. That's me. Okay? Let's talk a little bit about the call to action. And then I want to just close. The call to those who are listening to Jesus and the call to us is the same. He essentially draws a line in the sand here about commitment. They grumbled and complained and said, you know, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this Joseph's and, and Mary's son? We know him. He's a carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter. How can he now say that he came down from heaven? How can he, how can he equate himself with, with Moses or the prophet? And in verses 43 to 51, you know, Jesus responds, and I don't want to take the time to read it today, but they were so close to Jesus, right next to the Messiah, but they could not recognize him. They were so close to the truth, but they somehow couldn't see it. And Jesus says to them a few key things here in this text. First, He says, No one comes to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Verse 44. And I will raise them up at the last day. He reiterates at this moment that He is the bread of life. He goes sort of back into that statement again and He says some interesting things. But let me talk quickly about uh, about the unleavened bread of Passover. How many of you have seen one of these? You guys use matzah in your church for communion? It doesn't matter. Uh, this is unleavened bread, though. It's what, it's what Jewish culture uses. Um, we know that, that the communion service, those are emblems that we use to remember. We use to remember the death and the resurrection, the shed blood of our Lord. But the matzah itself is used in Jewish culture, and I want you to notice a few quick things about it. In matzah, there are three things that you need to notice. There's the burn marks throughout the bread. You see where the, the fire has scorched the bread? Nobody knows you know, where these terms came from. They've been used for, for literally thousands of years. But what they call those burn marks are the bruises. That's the bruising in the bread. And then there are, are little piercings in the bread. You see the, the rows, the holes? Little piercings. And that's to let the, let the hot air through so that, so that the steam can escape when the unleavened bread is baking because there's no, you know, there's no yeast. There's nowhere for the air to go. You know, in, in yeast bread, it puffs up nice and big and... So, so those are the piercings. And then also the bruising, you'll notice, ends up happening in, in rows. Actually, rows this way, horizontally. And they call those rows of bruises, anybody guess what they call them? They call them stripes. So, I'm not going to read it for you, but go to Isaiah 53 and, and read it again. Who, who was pierced for our transgressions? Who was bruised? for our iniquity, right? And so we, we understand these symbols are not just, you know, they're not just happenstance. So when Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the bread, I'm the matzah, I'm the matzah of life. 
I'm the one. I'm, I'm you know, the Passover sacrifice. And, and he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But if you eat the living bread, you will live forever. And by the way, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is in the last part of the chapter. You have no life in you, but if you do eternal life, my flesh is real food. You see, bread, remember we said it's a staple. It's physical nourishment. It's physical sustenance. In the same way, Jesus says, spiritual nourishment and sustenance I provide as the bread of life. And my blood, he says, is real drink. This was a a hard, hard truth. He wasn't talking about, uh, you know, uh, zombie culture and the night of the living dead. He was he was making a, a, a connection between himself and between what what Jewish culture talked about in terms of of the the seder meal, the bread and the wine. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And it says here in verse sixty that this was such a hard truth that many who followed Jesus actually left at this point. Jesus was hinting at what was to come. Follow Him. It was going to be a full-on commitment. You will have to take part in My suffering. You'll have to eat My flesh. You'll have to drink My blood. Identify with the suffering that I will undergo. And when so many of His disciples began to leave, He turned to the twelve and He said, are you going to leave Me too? And look what, G- look what Peter says. John six sixty-eight. Lord, to whom shall we go? Only You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that You are the Holy One of God. So, have you ever gone to the cupboard to get a piece of bread for a sandwich and the bread is dry and maybe you have to pick the little green spot off so that you can actually use it because it's all the bread you have in the house? You've you've experienced that before, right? And you make this sandwich and you put lots of mustard and mayonnaise and butter because you know that the bread is dry to start with, right? Have you ever done that? And you bite into the sandwich. Is the sandwich ever good? No, it's not what you expected. It's not what you hoped. It's, it's, it's terrible. You know why? Because we like fresh bread. We like fresh bread. And so I want to just challenge you sort of as a, as a call to action here that you know, we, we need fresh bread every day. I like the bread that the steam is, is rising off of when you, when you break it open. And Jesus says, you know, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Don't try and sustain yourself spiritually on past experiences. Get up every day and break fresh bread. Get into the presence of Jesus. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. And feast on the truth of His Word. He is the Logos, the living Word, the bread of life. So we need to have fresh bread, first of all. But we also need to you know, feed the hungry. Here's the lesson of the leftovers. They, they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftover bread. Why? Because... Jesus knew that they would encounter, encounter other people who needed, who needed food. And you and I, we encounter people every day who do not know the bread of life. And when we are receiving from Him every day, when we are getting fresh bread every day, there's lots of Jesus to go around. Did you know that? When, when we're in His presence, when we understand our relationship with Him and His relationship with us, we've got lots to share with other people around us. We need to feed the hungry, because when you are fed spiritually by the bread of life, there's more than enough for you and for others as well. And then lastly, we need to you know, follow the Master. We need to follow the Master. Jesus demands full commitment. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We've got to be you know, all in. All in.
To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you found that teaching informative. And uh, just to let you know, you know, talking about the bread of life, we are actively involved as a ministry in uh, providing the bread of life, spiritual sustenance for believers in the land of Israel and also extending that, that bread of life, that hope of the Messiah, Yeshua, to the Jewish people as well. And so if you want to help us to do that, uh, we would appreciate that so much. We also provide literal bread, much humanitarian aid through various ministries and organizations in the land of Israel. These are trusted and proven partners that we work with. And so please uh, check out our website, www.firstcenturyfoundations.com forward slash donate. That's firstcenturyfoundations with an S dot com forward slash donate. And we would love it if you would partner with us in that way. If you enjoy these podcasts and uh, you are receiving any kind of blessing from them, uh, your partnership with us would just be so amazing. And so we thank you in advance for checking out our website. Thanks for listening today. And remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel. Thanks.